Revelation chapter 4. I want to share with you all, I'm, I am currently this weekend, and I'm going to have to blaze out of here. In fact, uh, I'm going to disappear during the during the song right after the teaching, because I have to be down in Oak Harbor. I'm, my whole family, Cheryl and, and Henri and Naomi, we're all in the Nutcracker Ballet down there. I don't dance, I don't wear tights. Don't you know that? I have a small part in that. I have a couple or three years now playing Drosselmeyer, and it's a lot of fun. But I have to get down there and get all ready for that, so I've got to leave quickly. But I want to tell you something. I was watching last night, and uh, a young lady who plays the Sugar Plum Fairy, she's been in the ballet for many, many years now. Her name's Ainsley. And Ainsley was out there dancing, and, and I had read her bio that said this was her dream and from a little girl up to be the sugar plum fairy. It's a very important part in the Nutcracker. And she was out there dancing. And what struck me, not only how much she has grown into just fantastic, amazing uh, young dancer, but it struck me the precision. It wasn't the speed, it wasn't the height of the leaps, although all of that was there, but it was the precision of the moves. That when she was up on point, how she could stand there with one leg this way and the other one literally perpendicular, on point, not moving. And I'm like, that's ow, ow, how do you do that? And she said, I was so impressed with this and I began thinking about the whole ballet and Miss Diane who, who oversees this thing is very intent on them doing it right. She, she is a stickler for that, which is excellent because that's, the, that's what ballet is. It needs to be precise. And, and she really um, stays on the girls about this. And I was noticing that more than ever last night, how precise the movements are and the dances. And what I'm getting at is this. Last night it hit me. Again, how precise God's Word is. That as with each of these moves, God doesn't leave things to chance. Jesus didn't speak words randomly. He didn't just throw things out there and then later have to correct himself. I, I do on occasion. I have to say, hey, we got to come back and let me revisit this and, and explain what I meant by that. I have to do that type of thing. Not Jesus. He says what he means and he means what he says. And when you come to God's Word with that understanding that he is intentional, that he is precise, even with the order of things, you get, well, you get revelation. And that's what we're looking for. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in spirit. The the isn't there. I was in spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the thrones were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones, 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Father, show us the precision of these things. Give us insight, we ask. We seek revelation. We want these things to be unveiled before us so that we can understand Not only what your word says, but what your will is. For your church, for your people, for all who would trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, said critics are much madder than poets. 
Homer is a complete and is complete and calm enough. It's his critics who tear him into extravagant tatters. Shakespeare is quite himself. It's only some of his critics who have discovered that he was somebody else. (laughs) And though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Now, I have found that to be true. You guys didn't laugh at that either. I think that's really funny. If you've studied Revelation, if you've looked at commentaries on Revelation, you know people come up with some of the most ridiculous things. They draw out of of the Revelation, and they come up... There are entire churches, there are cults, based off of one or two verses out of this book. People saying, the 144,000, that's us. You know, not recognizing by context and by teaching what's really going on there. And we'll talk about that, you know, when we come to it. But people can make this crazy. And so again, John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision. He saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. The general fact, Chesterton says, is simple. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and make it finite. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician, the critic, who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. What is Chesterton saying here? Listen, for all the evidence, all the facts, all the testimony and reason and logic, truly, that is in the Bible until we come to it by faith, until we come with that desire to get our heads into the heavens rather than to cram the heavens into our heads, our heads will split. And I've seen it time and time again. The people can't believe because they can't work it out. And what I'm saying to you is that all the working it out is available. All the truth is there. It is solid. It is sound. It is good. But if that's your entire focus and you don't come to Jesus with trust, you're not going to get it. You are not going to understand it. Trust. Faith. Faith, we've been saying over and over for a couple of years now, faith is no religious thing. You've got to pull the religion out of the faith. It is not ritualistic. Faith is not behaving by a certain set of rules or standards. Faith is trust. We trust God like you would trust a friend who has shown themselves to be true. Or husbands would trust a wife who has been faithful, a wife trusting the husband who has been the same. It's trust. That's what faith is. And when you come to Jesus, the question is, and I'll ask you to ask yourself this this morning, have I come to trust Jesus more or even at all, over these past few weeks of being in the Revelation. Do you trust Him more? Do you see more of His will and His purposes? Do you find your relationship with Him growing and expanding? I mean, we're now 19 studies in. 19 studies, 3 chapters. (laughs) And into chapter 4. Indeed, 66 books in the entire Bible, but am I willing to accept the revelation of Jesus Christ? Do you trust Him? We're going to get into some specifics this morning. Some some moves like the dancers that are precise. 
Some of this you may disagree with. Some of you Bible scholars may listen and go, ah, I'm not sure if I buy that. That's okay. You know, it's tough to be the only one who's right sometimes, but I'm willing to do it. If I... I will tell you ahead of time some of what we're going to talk about. There are questions that it will raise. And you're, you might go away scratching your head over a few of the things. Don't miss the big picture. As you think through all of this, this is about trusting in a God who unveils before us what He's going to do. It's about believing in Him. It is the critic. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. To squeeze God's word of truth into my little brain. To try and make it fit neatly into my paradigm or my perceptions or my uh, highly schooled personal opinions. I run into things in the scripture. I've told you before. I read it and I say, wow, that is not what I was taught. That is not what I thought I believed before. But this is what it says And if I fight against God, and if I try to cram the heavens into my head, I'm just going to end up with a splitting headache. But let God's Word be God's Word. That's all I'm asking. Let God's Word be God's Word. Accept it as such, and what you'll find instead is your head will be lifted up to the heavens along with all the rest of you. When? After these things. After these things. After what things? Well, you know, Jesus there in chapter 1 glorified John saw the things which he had seen. He wrote that down. Revelation 1.19. Write the things which you have seen. And he did. Jesus glorified. Write, John, the things which are. And he did. The church age. Seven letters to churches across the entire church age. And we have gone meticulously through this to show that these letters reveal seven conditions of the church. Across 2,000 years. But note this, and it may seem simplistic, but it's important to see, even looking in your Bibles, after verse 22 of chapter 3, there are no more letters. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying after Laodicea, and of course some semblance of the Philadelphia, the Sardis, the Thyatira, systems of the church, after Laodicea, There are no more church systems. Do you understand what that means? That means as we looked at Laodicea, if we believe, and I do, that lukewarm Laodicea is well represented by the church right now, we have come to the end of the church age. There are no more churches. There are no more letters. There are no more designations of the church. We are here at the end of these things. And then Jesus continues on with John as he writes after these things, after this church age. My friends, I believe we are on the precipice of this. I'm not not just preaching this. Please hear my heart. I'm not trying to stir anybody up. I mean, what would I have to gain from it anyway if I just wanted to try and convince you that today could be the final day or this week or next month could be it? It's not about preaching a sermon. I truly believe this. I try to live this way. Reminded often that this this is temporary. And that we are on the precipice of the after these things. Which makes the rest of our study through Revelation all the more compelling because we're on the verge in reality, in real time, of what's going to take place after these things. 
We've come to that point. Wednesday night, we entered into the throne room of heaven in our study in chapter 4. And there we saw fantastical things. I even said, if you try to compare the worship service in Revelation 4 with a typical worship service at the bridge on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you can't even compare. Although I've got to tell you, I was standing back there by Les. I went over to to ask him if he could kind of cover for me at the very end so I could scoot out of here. And his eyes were closed and he was worshiping and I didn't want to interrupt. So I just stood there for a moment and I closed my eyes and I began to listen. You all sound good. It was, it was really, I don't know, elevating. Do that sometime. In the middle of worship, just shut up. Close your eyes. Not everybody at once, because then you know it all stops. But just close your eyes and listen to the saints worshiping around you. It was, this morning, it was truly awesome. Very cool. But you know, what we don't have is we don't have lightning and thunder coming out of the throne. We don't have all these colors, brilliant colors. We don't have angels and cherubim and seraphim and elders all around the throne praising God and declaring glory to God. We don't see that here. We just have us. You know, Seahawks jerseys. Just worshiping the Lord. It's amazing. It's awesome. We realized on Wednesday night as we looked at these things that truly this, this scene in heaven, chapters 4 and 5, well placed, notice the sequence, church age, and then there's a scene in heaven, and then beginning in chapter 6, something ominous, the tribulation. I believe that Jesus intentionally placed Revelation 4 and 5 right here before the tribulation. Before the wrath of God is poured out on this earth. Before that time. That this scene in heaven is both worship and warning. It is worship, absolutely. Because that's what you do in the presence of God. You can't come into the presence of God and not worship. It's what your heart desires. It's what you must do. You're compelled by His presence to simply worship. Which means if you're having trouble worshiping, you're not in the presence of God. Maybe you're not paying attention. Maybe you're thinking about that Jersey Mike sandwich that you're going to have for lunch. Have you gone to Jersey Mike's yet? Oh man, that's good food. Has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It's just really good food. Anyway, that was a free plug for Jersey Mike's down in Oak Harbor. Worship is what you do when you're focused on God. When you're thinking about Jesus, you can't help it. And that's going on in this throne room, chapters 4 and 5. But there's also warning. There's something ominous here. We'll pick up even more on this on Wednesday night, recognizing what's taking place in this moment, a warning that is given. Well, let's get our heads into the heavens this morning. Look at verse 1. After these things, that Greek phrase, meta tauta, write the things, he said, which will take place after these things. So that's where we are. After these things I looked, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here. And I will show you what must take place, metatauta, after these things. So he sandwiches that first verse with the after these things phrase so that we won't miss it, so that we know we have now entered into what takes place after the church age. The very next thing on God's agenda here. Note this, John hears a voice, like the first voice which he had heard. What was the first voice which he had heard? Chapter 1, verse 10, I was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind, behind me a loud voice like of a trumpet. Same exact description, and he turns to see the voice that's speaking to him, and it is Jesus. Awesome. 
glorious, powerful Jesus. And now, after these things, John says, I hear it again. I hear the voice again. The first voice that I had heard, he sees Jesus. Now, note this. I find it interesting. Jesus always arrives twice. He always arrives twice. And we could say he's got his first coming and his second coming. He comes two times. He comes with invitation, as in his first coming. He comes with exaltation in his second coming. The first time he showed up into the world with an invitation to know him. To believe in Him. To see Him sacrificed and to recognize He did that on our behalf. To learn how to trust in Him and receive forgiveness of sin and restoration and healing and redemption and salvation. The first time He came, invitation. Second time He came or will come into the world, it's exaltation. He returns, Revelation 19, as the glorious King. Exalted. Awesome. He will take the throne in Jerusalem at that time. God as King here on earth. He will rule and He will reign in righteousness. Isaiah 9-7 says, From then on and forevermore. Invitation, His first coming. Exaltation, His second coming. But even within each of these two comings, He comes in two phases. Have you ever thought about it like that? That in His first coming, Jesus came as a humble baby into the world came as a human baby. As we'll talk about tonight, as we consider and think about in this season. Isaiah 7.14 The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son. She'll call His name Emmanuel. God with us. But who knew? Looking at the infant in the manger in Bethlehem, who knew? This is God. He just looked like any other baby. Cried like any other baby. Did what any other baby would do. Grew up. He was a teenager like any other teenager. Did what any other teenager would do. Lived life. At age 30, suddenly now Jesus begins this ministry, but still people were trying to figure Him out. He's just Joseph and Mary's son, right? He's just a human like any of us. And He gives this ministry as this humble baby. It's a ministry of invitation. That's why He came. But He comes in two phases. He came then and He dies and then there was exaltation. He came back. Resurrected. A second phase, if you will, of His first coming. Resurrected to His followers and they stood there on the Mount of Olives after it was all said and done. Talk about exaltation. They watched Him ascend into the heavens. Acts chapter 1, verses 9-11. through 11. And the angels standing there appeared before the apostles and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. Meaning what? Meaning as Zechariah prophesied, He's going to come right back down to the Mount of Olives. But that was all in His first coming. Two phases. Comes as a human, comes back as a resurrected Savior. Guess what? In His second coming, two phases. Two phases of His second coming. Something I didn't understand growing up. I never heard. Maybe many of you hadn't heard it either. I heard that there was a second coming. He's going to come again and He's going to take us to heaven. And then what? I don't know. No one ever told me. I'd ask the question in Sunday school. I was told to sit down. But but what does He do when He comes? Well, that's up to God. He doesn't tell us? You get a heart. What? I play guitar, that's cool, you can plug it in, you go electric, but a harp? 
my apologies to Rachel. She plays harp. You get a halo. I, I didn't understand. And we've talked about, you know, I, don't, I didn't get those things. It just seemed all like just one vague, he comes. No, two phases. Two phases of his second coming. Phase one, he comes to get his followers. We call it the rapture of the church, based on that Latin word, raptus, which is harpazo in the Greek, which is to be caught up. I'll show it to you in just a minute, but many of you have heard the verse many times. He comes to get His followers. That's phase one. Jesus said in John 14.3, If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I will receive you to Myself. This is the rapture. This is the catching up to be with Jesus. He said in Matthew 24.40, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. And that word taken, exact same word Jesus said, I'll receive you to myself, paralambano, one will be received unto. One will be left. One will be received unto. Get that. And one will be left. Because in the first phase of His second coming, we will be received unto Jesus. And then the second phase of His coming, He comes back to set up His kingdom on the earth. Received unto and returning. And that's all part of what we would call the second coming of Jesus. Listen to Zechariah explain that second phase. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4. I'm just going to read it to you. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. And you will flee, Israel, by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light, luminaries will dwindle, speaking of sun, moon, stars. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea, so that's the Dead Sea and the Med Sea. It will be summer, in summer as well as in winter, and the Lord, get this, the Lord, don't miss this, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the one and His name, the one, the only one. Do you hear the difference? One, you're received unto. The other, He comes down. Those are two different phases of a second coming. The first is invitation, received unto. The second is exaltation. He comes in glorious rule to reign. Interesting to me, that it points out this way. And John sees that glorious return graphically represented in Revelation 19, which we'll study when we get there, but Jesus comes back, clearly, as Zechariah prophesied. And heaven opens. In fact, listen to that. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened. Just that much. Do you realize in the book of Revelation, heaven only opens twice? Two phases, if you will. It opens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, where John is caught up in spirit. And then it opens again in Revelation 19, where Jesus returns glorified. Phase 1, phase 2. The church raptured, the church returning with Jesus. 
It's very clear when we look with precision at what the Word actually says. Phase 1, invitation. Phase 2, glorification, exaltation. Well, we're looking for phase 1. That is the first opening of heaven. We are looking to be caught up. A little more on this. Look at verse 2 of Revelation chapter 4. Immediately I was in spirit. As I said, the the isn't there. There's no definite article. So it's just I was in spirit. Same experience John had in chapter 1. He was in spirit on the Lord's day. But now he's in spirit again. This is a more supernatural thing. Something's taken place here. Wild, unexplainable. Reason would say, how is this going on? What's really happening? But faith just says, well, it's happening because God said it is. I was in spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. John is instantly transported, translated up to heaven. He's not just, my opinion, not just translated up to heaven, but he is transferred from 95 AD all the way up to after these things. Transferred up to this moment, this time, this... Transferred into the future, if you will. Insert back to the future theme music right here. He's shot forward to see something to then write down. Because how else can you write what's going to take place after these things unless you're there to see it? So Jesus, by the Spirit, pulls John out of time and drops him into the throne room, which is the very first thing to take place after the church age. The throne room. And what's going on there? And that's important to remember. The first opening of heaven. Note that John says, Immediately I was in spirit and behold the throne. Immediately, he says, this takes place. John's experience as he writes it is both spirit uplifting and it is sudden. It's immediate. It's instantaneous. Does that sound familiar? It should if you've ever studied or thought about the church being caught up. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And it's not a long, slow process of transformation. It's not a study program. It's not a workout regimen. We will be changed. I'm going to change this body into something magnificent. (laughs) It's not a self-help class on the mechanics of angelic flight. The rapture of the church is instantaneous. In fact, it's faster than that. He says, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, how fast is a twinkling? The Greek word is repay. Repay, which is a nearly indivisible unit of time. Get down to where you can barely even divide any further and you're getting close to how quickly this is going to happen. How fast. You're not, you're not going to have time to blink. It's not a blink. Or a wink, it's a twink. It's a twinkling of an eye. And you know, we've actually had people measure how long a twinkling of an eye is. With light traveling at 186,282 miles a second, speed of light, a twinkle clocks in, get this, at one-sixth billionth of a second. One-sixth billionth. I don't know who comes up with this stuff. Who has the time to sit down and figure this out mathematically? But one-sixth billionth of a second, it happens, a twinkling, immediately, instantaneously. And that's what happens to John in Revelation 4. It's exactly what Paul says will happen to the church at the rapture. What are you saying, Rick? 
I'm saying when you compare the language of Revelation 4 verses 1 and 2 with the language of the rapture, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, other places, the parallels are stunning. That John perhaps, I suggest to you, is a type or a picture, in verses 1 and 2 at least, of the church rapture. Of how it will happen. Of how quickly it takes place. Let me just read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, where Paul says, and I, I invite you to jot these things down, write down the verses behind me. I know there are many of them. Get a screenshot with your iPhone, whatever you have to do. But he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. My dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer. I just found this out last week. Um, it's early. Early stages, slow growing, slow moving. They have high hopes. And I was talking to him about that. My dad is one of the most laid back people in the world. If he was any more laid back, he would be horizontal. Yeah, for my dad, it's, it's not about speed. It's about comfort. You know? So he's just a slow mover and, and just content. I've never met a more content human being. And I'm talking to him about it and he's just not worried. And you know what? Neither am I. I have thought, is this what's going to take my dad? Will this be it for him? Which then makes you as a son think, I wonder if that's what's going to take me. I wonder. I, I, I hope and pray that I'm caught up, that I'm raptured long before I die of natural or physical causes, but I could. You know? I, I like that, that, that one saying, I would much rather die like my grandfather in his sleep than like all the passengers in his car. <laughs> you to be uninformed about those who are asleep as to, and you will not grieve as do the rest you have no hope. We have hope. We have a hope of where we're going and what's taking place. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's the basis. Do you believe that? If we believe that, Paul says, even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are fallen or have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Oh, that sounds familiar. With a voice of the archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. Where? Paul, in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I find these words incredibly comforting. I don't have to worry about the journey, how to get there, the destination. I don't have to know on Google Maps, how do I find my way to heaven? God's got it. It will be instantaneous. We will be caught up. And even if you have died in Christ, you're going to be caught up first. You'll be with the Lord. It's wonderful to consider. And it is two phases of His second coming. The catching up, the invitation to be with Jesus, and the return, the exaltation. Or as Paul wrote in Titus 2.13, the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. The blessed hope, the rapture, the comforting hope, and the glorious appearing of Jesus. You see, in the blessed hope, we're caught up. In the glorious appearing, He puts His foot down. In the blessed hope, we meet Him in the air. In the glorious appearing, He sets foot on the Mount of Olives as Zechariah promised, as He prophesied. 
And by the way, we reprinted that biblical comparison. If you don't have that or you lost yours and you want to kind of really think this through, the glorious appearing of Jesus, the rapture of the church, two phases of one coming. We have them printed up. They're right here on the stage. They're also back on the back uh, bookshelf back there. So you can grab one and stick it in your Bible. I encourage you to look at the differences. Because it can't be both. It can't be the same thing. The Bible is very clear about what's the rapture and what's the glorious appearing. And so we printed that up for you to study on your own time and take a look at it. I invite you to do that if you haven't yet. And so here we see John. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, John caught up. It's instantaneous. It's a booming trumpet voice that he hears. It is the voice of Jesus. The voice here now we know. When we read 1 Thessalonians 4, it's like, what does he say? He hears a voice. What does the voice say? Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, come up here. And then to John he says, and I'll show you what must take place after these things. So John, almost as a, a type, a picture of the church, gets caught up. And into heaven. But remember, John is transported to see what has, what's happened, what has taken place immediately after these things. And what's going on there? What John sees now that he arrives is the church in heaven. That's not the primary thing. Now get this, understand. The main thing, first John gets in there and he's just overwhelmed with the throne room, but he sees the one sitting on the throne. And this one is the focus. And this one is Jesus Christ. Who's the focus of our faith now? John sees him, but then John notices something else. He sees, and I want to show this to you, the church caught up. The church present at and around the heavenly throne. Look at verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. 24 elders. Who are these these elders? Let's pause this morning and think about these elders. What do they represent? Who are they? Around the throne in heaven, 24 in the Greek presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. So you know at least 24 Presbyterians are going to make it to heaven. (laughs) And if you are a Presbyterian, you know, good luck. There's only 24. (laughs) Odds are not in your favor. I'm kidding. 24 presbyteros, 24 elders. Who are they? Some say the 24 elders are angels. A classification, a special classification of angels. But I, I dismiss that. In fact, there are very clear distinctions between the 24 elders and the angels, whether they be seraphim or cherubim or other angels. There's a difference between them and the 24 elders. In fact, if you skip ahead and look at verse 11 of Revelation 5, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, that's the cherubim and the seraphim, and the elders as a separate grouping, distinct from the creatures, the angels, all the others. You've got these, these elders. And the elders. Interesting. The elders. Let me give you some more distinctions. Angels speak an ancient praise. The elders sing a new song. We often think of angels singing. We throw that one out pretty loosely. We sing angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing or the plains. I'm not sure if angels sing sweetly. I think it's more awesome. 
Have you ever seen that? There's that video that's out on YouTube of the military guys singing Days of Elijah. I think it's something like that. These are the days of... You know, I mean, there's tough angels. Not in little frilly skirts. La, la, la. <laughs> angels, we... No! Angels, we have heard on high. And they're singing. I, are they singing? Are the angels on high singing at the birth of Jesus? We in our Christmas carols sing, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn King. Are they? No. Not at Jesus' birth. And by the way, there is not a single biblical angel named Harold. So get that one down. Luke chapter 2 verse 13 says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. They weren't like you know, a chorus, Glory to God in the highest. No, they were proclaiming praise. They were not singing praise. There's a distinction there. And in fact, the vast percentage of time that you see angels doing anything in the Scriptures that is vocal, it is spoken, not sung. The only one that you can find in Scripture that might indicate singing Job chapter 38 verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But even that, sons of God, Bene Elohim, is angels. The angels are shouting. The morning stars are singing. Some will say, well, morning stars, maybe those are angels. Maybe, possibly. But the point I'm making is not that angels can't sing. It's that they tend to declare rather than to sing. That's what angels do. They declare worship. You know you don't have to sing worship? You can declare it. Those who sit there and go, well, I don't sing because I don't have a singing voice. Do you have a voice? Then declare praise to God. Be declarative in your worship. And that's what the angels are doing. And especially here in chapters 4 and 5, all we see the angels do is speak. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Note that. That's in verse 8 of chapter 4. Day and night, they do not cease to say this. They're declaring worship. They're declaring praise. And praise can be, and I think in our lives should be, declarative. Thank you. You don't have to go up to a friend and start singing worship songs to be worshiping. Do you realize when you speak Jesus to a friend, you are worshiping? When you share Jesus with someone who doesn't know, or perhaps with believers who do, man, Jesus was so good to me this last week, you know what He did? And you are worshiping. It's declarative praise. That's what angels do. The elders are singing. The angels are, in Revelation, not specifically numbered. What we see is myriads upon myriads of angels. Hebrews 12.22 You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, and to heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. Which is what we see throughout. The angels in, in large number. But the elders are specifically numbered 24. So you're saying only 24 believers will be in heaven? Is that what you're implying? No, 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 no. The elders, 24, it's a class. It's a designation. It's like the four tops. Okay? Yeah, well, Rick, there's only four of them. Okay, well, like the Jackson 5. Oh, there's five of them. Matchbox 20. There you go. Matchbox 20 does not have 20 guys in the band. 
It's a name. It's a designation. It's an idea here. And I believe that's what's going on with the 24 elders. Over and over and over, they're referred to as the 24 elders. You know how many times, by the way, they're called the 24 elders in the book of Revelation? And just find this interesting? Five times. Which is the number of grace in the Bible. Which may have something to do with the 24 elders. Angels are never said to be crowned. The 24 elders are wearing very special crowns, as we'll see. Angels angels don't get grace. Right, Eva? We were just talking about this last week. This is one of those awesome realities about angelic beings, heavenly beings. They don't get grace because they've never had to receive grace. They were just created to worship, created in God's presence. Not like you and like me, they've never known or received redemption. So they don't fully comprehend it, which is why Peter said of the prophetic God, plan of God in Christ, 1 Peter 1.12, that these are things into which angels long to look. They see what God's doing here with you, with me, with the church age, and they go, what's going on? Hey, Michael, get over here. What is this? What does this mean? I hear Paul talking about grace. I see people claiming to be saved by grace. Father, what does this mean? And he's laying it all out and he's teaching angels. And if you were were with us when we studied Ephesians, you know what I'm talking about. Because Paul said the same thing, that part of the reason all of this church age happened was so that God could teach heavenly angels about grace. That they could understand Him even better. Ephesians 3.10 So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So there's a, a training program for angels going on with you and with me. But here's where we're different. Angels who don't know grace, that's all we know. The 24 elders know something about grace and redemption. So you might get what I'm hinting about as far as the nature of or the identity of the 24 elders. I can tell you this much, when I read Revelation 4 and 5, the 24 elders are not angels. They are not angels. Now, some believe, alright, then the 24 elders not being angels but present in heaven perhaps are a representation of the entire company of saints. That is, Old Testament and New Testament. And that's a good possibility. Some believe that. I have believed that. I'm really swaying another direction right now. Which I'll explain to you. Either one, and none of neither position is a salvation issue. So if you take a position on one and you're pretty solid on it, that's, that's fine. But some say, that's what it's got to be. Skip over to Revelation 21 real quick. Revelation 21. Verse 12. And this is why some people say when you see the 24 elders in heaven, in Revelation 4 and 5, it's 12 from Israel, it's 12 from the church. Watch this. Verse oh, verse 12, Revelation 21, it had a great and high wall, speaking of New Jerusalem, with 12 gates. And at the gates were 12 angels. And names were written on them, that is the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So imagine that, 12 gates surrounding New Jerusalem, and every gate has a name above it. And those names are Reuben, Shimon, Levi. All the way around finally to Benjamin. Those names will be on the gates of New Jerusalem. 
But then in verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now so foundation stones on which New Jerusalem stands are the names of the apostles. Twelve of them. Huh. Well, Judas is out. Who's number twelve? Any opinions? There's a lot of Pauls. I'm a Paul fan. Some would say Matthias. Matthias, Acts chapter 1. You know, they drew straws. Matthias, Matthias, he's our man. Which will it be? I, I, I think it's going to be Paul, but I don't know. I don't know. But 12 apostles, 12 apostles, 12 patriarchs, sons of Israel, 12 plus 12 equals 24. Your math skills are phenomenal. Now people say that, but that's the representation of the 24 elders. 12 from Israel, 12 from the church, you're good to go. That's interesting, and I understand that perspective, because truly Messiah, Jesus, did come through Israel. But note that New Jerusalem is founded with the names of the apostles on those stones. That the foundation is the church. That there is a foundation in Christ Jesus, those Jewish sons of Israel were pre-Christ, before Jesus. The apostles after. The apostles have a different representation. Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. A foundation. Paul said the foundation is Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 So there's a foundational issue here that New Jerusalem and the hope of the future, and especially for these 24 elders, there is a foundation in Jesus. But let me push you a little further on this, because I, I am not convinced it's 12 from Israel, 12 from the church. It is interesting to note in the math of, of this number 24, if you go back to First Chronicles 24, and you can do that, but I'm going I'm to start reading, got to keep moving here. First Chronicles 24, verse 1, tells us this. The divisions of the descendants of Aaron were these. The sons of Aaron were Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had no sons. See, they were the two earliest ones and they were fired. Quite literally, they burned out. You can read the story. But they're out of the picture. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests. This is in the Aaronic priesthood over Israel, the priests coming from the line of Aaron. And you've got Eleazar and Ithamar. And so David, King David, at the time, with Zadok of the sons of Eleazar and Ahimelech of the sons of Ithamar, divided them according to their offices for their ministry. Since more chief men were found from the descendants of Eleazar than the descendants of Ithamar, they divided them thus. There were 16 heads of fathers' households of the descendants of Eleazar and 8 of the descendants of Ithamar. Do the math quickly. 16 plus 8 is? 24. 24. 24 is the number of the priesthood. Remember that. If you were a Jewish person, this is the number of the priesthood for a thousand years. In fact, down in 1 Chronicles 24.19, it says, These were their offices for their ministry when they came into the house of the Lord, according to the ordinance given to them through Aaron their father, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. What's the deal here? 24 courses of priests. Or classes, if you will. Not differing levels, but 24 groupings of all of these priests of the priesthood of Aaron. 
And what they would do is they would each take their turns. 24, one group would go in and they would serve the temple for two weeks. Then they come out and the second course would go in. And they come out and the third course would go in. And all the way down to the 24th course. And then you go around to the first one and start all over. For a thousand years, that was the point. During the first temple period, during the second temple period, that's what the priests did. Are you with me on this? 24 priests. 24 courses of the priests. 24 elders. So what are you saying, Rick, that they're all Israel? No. Actually, I'm not. Because if you notice, the 24 elders are all seated on their thrones, and the 24 courses of the priests never sat down on the job. If you were a priest of Israel, you were on your feet. That's what you did. You went in, you served, you offered the incense, you changed the bread on the table of the showbread, you trimmed the candles, the lampstand... You were in and out and on your feet and always standing and there was not a chair in the tabernacle or in the temple. No seat, no chair. Well, okay, there was one. Mercy seat. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, but I can tell you what, no priest ever sat on that. That was the seat that God said, I will meet you there at the mercy seat. What about the priests? They just served. They were on their feet, in and out. But these 24 elders are seated on their thrones. Interesting. Jesus said in Matthew 19.28, You shall all sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Talking to the apostles. So we know we can look at 24 thrones, we can go, well, at least twelve of them are the apostles. So does that mean if the other twelve are Israel, that the apostles are seated on twelve thrones, judging the guys on the other twelve? Is that how that works? No. Stay with me here. The number 24. The 24. It speaks of priestly office. Those who have a priestly office, but I will add this, not of Israel. Why not? Remember where we are. Remember where we are in the sequence of things here in the Revelation. This is the after these things. In Revelation 4 and 5, there is a specific people who are here in heaven with the Lamb in the throne room before the tribulation breaks out on planet earth. 24 is a priestly office. Israel, even faithful Israel of old, is on a different track than the church. The church is on one track Israel is on another. God is dealing with the two uniquely and separately. Now, understand this. Both will be saved, ultimately, by faith in Jesus, because that's the only way you can be saved. But here in the church age, if a Jewish person gives their life to Jesus Christ, trusts in Jesus, what do they become? See, Messianic Jews is our assumption. I would say they become Christians. They're the church. We designate Messianic Jews because there's a, a holding on to the heritage, and, and I don't dismiss that. I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I agree with that. I love the idea that someone who's Jewish, they will say, uh, becoming completed, you know, coming to know Messiah and keeping the feasts and the festivals and all the joy that is part of Judaism. That's fine. But Paul says very clearly there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means a Jew in the church age who comes to faith in Jesus is the church. The church. The apostles were all Jews. They're the church. 
Right? The early church, the first 30 or so years, all Jewish. Until the gospel began to go out to the Gentiles. So if a Jewish person gives their faith to Jesus, puts their trust in Jesus, they're part of the church. Guess what happens at the rapture of the church? They go. They go because they have stepped onto the track of the church. What about the rest of Israel? Different track. Different plan. And I even submit to you Israel of old is on a different plan. That Israel's expectation, rightly so from the Hebrew Scriptures, is a resurrection into the kingdom. Not a resurrection into the heavens. It's a resurrection to come out of the grave and step right into the kingdom rather than being caught up. Israel was never promised to be caught up. Israel was promised to be waked up and to step right into the kingdom. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1, there will be a time of distress. Speaking of the tribulation that picks up Nophis in chapter 6. After the after these things. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Isaiah said to Israel, chapter 26, verse 19, your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. He doesn't say you who die and lie in the dust will be caught up and rise first and meet the Lord in the air. He says you'll lie in the dust and you will awake. They will step right into the kingdom. And there's more passages that deal with that. Martha knew that. She understood that. Jesus shows up four days late for Lazarus' funeral. But he finally shows up. Martha goes running out to him. And I love that we see this in Martha because this woman had deep faith in Jesus. Even for the little scene in the kitchen that took place. Oh, I don't want to be a Martha. I want to be a Mary, people say. I want to be at Jesus' feet, not up there working. Hey, Martha had faith. And Martha comes rushing out to meet Jesus and says, Oh, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Which you know had to touch Jesus' heart. Jesus said, your brother will live again, or will rise again. Martha says, and this is all in John chapter 11, Martha says, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Good Jewish Martha, thinking with a good Jewish teaching, he's going to resurrect and step into the kingdom. Jesus says, you remember? I am the resurrection and the life. He who dies will live, and he who lives and believes in me will never die. That's a hint of the rapture. So there's this understanding among Jewish people, among the Hebrew Scriptures, that Israel is on a plan, that God's going to resurrect His people and they will step directly into the long-promised kingdom. The plan for the church is one of being caught up. It's two separate plans. Yeah, but Rick, it's it's a priesthood number. 24 is a priesthood number. So it has to deal with Israel. No, it doesn't. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a priesthood. I'm not Jewish. Of course, I haven't tried those genetic studies, the 23andMe.com. So I don't know. Maybe there's some in me. I, that'd be cool. But I'm a priest. I'm a royal priesthood. You're a royal priesthood if you're in Christ. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. And Peter's talking to Gentiles there. 
As he very clearly says in the next verse, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Well, that's the church. A royal priesthood. And I'm telling you, I believe the 24 elders are a representation of the church. Buckle up, watch this very quickly. Verse 4, look at what's happening. There are 24 thrones, and on the thrones, 24 elders sitting. Where? Upon the thrones, which is a fulfillment in and of itself of what Jesus said at the end of the letters to the church. Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne, suddenly we see 24 thrones, and there are elders seated upon those thrones, and it fulfills, I submit to you, Jesus' promise of thrones to be seated upon. And who's He talking to in Revelation 3.21? The church. Keep going. He says that those who are seated upon the throne are clothed specifically, because He's intentional, clothed in white garments. Huh. Jesus promised Sardis, the church, if they'd wake up, they would walk with Him in white garments. He said to Laodicea even, look, if you'll buy from Me white garments, prepaid, buy this from Me, He says to the church of Laodicea. And here they are, seated on these thrones, clothed in white garments. And golden crowns are upon their heads. Golden crowns? I told you angels don't wear crowns. Who who wears golden crowns? Well, there are two types of crowns. We'll talk about more on Wednesday night. There's the diadem, which is the royal ruler's crown. And there's the Stephanos, which is the leafy crown. My friends, it's the victor's crown. It's the crown given to the overcomer. These are golden, the word is, Stephanos that are on their heads. Given to overcomers. Given to victors. Fulfilling again Jesus' messages to the church. Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. Be faithful until death. I will give you the Stephanos of life. The crown of life. Revelation 3.11. To Philadelphia. Hold fast what you have so no one will take your Stephanos. Suddenly here are these elders. They are seated upon thrones, fulfilling a promise. They are wearing white garments, fulfilling a promise. They are wearing golden crowns, fulfilling a promise. All three promises to the church. To the church. Keep going. Look down at verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And so these elders know something about the creation, themselves having been created, but they're not angels. And here they are, casting their crowns crowns before the throne. And you know what? I, I think this is weird. I know we got the group casting crowns, but think about that. You're in worship before the throne in heaven, and you go, oh yeah! What if you hit Jesus? Some of you would. I know, I've seen some of your throwing. It's not pretty. Say, I think of my own throwing. I can nail him. Casting crowns, what does this mean? It's, okay, it's not like the Beatles and jelly beans. True story. 
Back in the touring days of the Beatles, their fans discovered that the Beatles liked jelly beans. And they started pelting the Beatles in their concerts. It's one of the reasons, truly, that the Beatles quit touring. It just got out of control. Out of hand. People would throw... John Lennon almost lost an eye from a jelly bean. Again, true story. So why would we be chucking our crowns at Jesus? It just seems weird to me. I understand the context and what's being said. The 24 elders put their crowns before the Lord. The word is follow. Follow can mean to throw, but it also means to thrust out or just to put. And these 24 elders are doing this, and there was a practice in Rome in the first century where the emperor would invite the kings from all around the realm, kings of of their smaller uh, realms within the larger realm of Rome, but they were called kings like King Herod. They would come before the emperor and they would bow before him and they would set their crowns on the ground before him. The emperor would move king to king, pick up the crown and place it back on their head as a symbol of where their authority came from. Casting crowns before the Lord, in worship, before the throne. He has given us authority to rule and to reign. In fact, Revelation 5.10 says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Why would they be casting crowns? Why would they be putting their crowns? Because they come before Him. Place the crowns on the ground. The Lord picks it up, places it back on your head. And you know, and I know where our authority comes from. It comes from the Lord. 24 elders casting their crowns. Keep going. Verse 4 of chapter 5. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. So, question. Who in heaven is worthy to open the book and the seven seals? It's Jesus. You know that. I know that. Now, someone might hear the question, who is worthy to open the book and say, I don't even know what the book is. Seven seals? A scroll? Some of your translations rightly say, by the way, a scroll? What is that? Well, if you don't know, come back Wednesday night because we're going to talk about exactly what that means and what that is. But you know, you know, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Right. Who is the root of David? Right. And you all know that, don't you? Anyone not know that? You all know that. Guess what? So do the 24 elders. How do they know? If they're the church, they would know what the Lamb has accomplished. They would have that understanding. Here's John. Now I had someone after second service say, well then why didn't John know? Good question. How would you feel if you were suddenly thrust into the throne room of heaven? All this is going on. This magnificence is going on. And you see a scroll. And it's highly significant to you, as we'll talk about Wednesday. And you realize, what, what's going to happen? Who's going to open this? And, and the elder says, well, who's worthy? No, I don't know. I mean, he's in a, he's in a, a weird place. <laughs> we can give John a little grace to not be sure of everything. Later on, he's not going to know who's coming out of the tribulation. He's just asking questions. He's trying to understand it all so that we can. But the 24 elders, they know. They know who's worthy. Because they know Jesus. Wait, there's more. Verse 8 of chapter 5. When he had taken the scroll... 
the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders, they fell down before the Lamb, each one, that is, of the elders, each one, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now in the Greek language, what's happening is it's clear that the, the ones holding harps and bowls are the 24 elders. But the bowls are filled with the prayers of the saints, so I ask, what are they doing with bowlfuls of the prayers of the saints? They're doing what a royal priesthood does. They are offering the prayers. That's what the priests did. They went in, they came to the altar of incense. They would sprinkle the incense on the altar. It would go up in sweet-smelling aroma, and they prayed for Israel. They interceded for Israel. Because remember, the priests of Israel were mediators between Israel and God. Now, here we are in this heavenly scene, and the 24 elders are doing just that. They're interceding. They're not mediating. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. But they are interceding, and we are invited even now to be priests who intercede. Intercessory prayer, that's what that means. We're interceding, we're praying for people. And here the elders are doing the very same thing, offering up prayer, I suggest because the prayers in the bowls are their prayers. Praying before God in this holy, awesome throne room. And here's the kicker, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And there is very good textual evidence to believe that them, in verse 10, is us. And they is we. In fact, there are other old manuscripts in the Greek where it is you have made us to be a kingdom and we will reign upon the earth besides the fact that's already been declared Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 John having come back now writing this all down he has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and Father to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen John recognizes when he writes that that the us The they in verse 10, the we or the them, the them and the they are us and we. But this is the church. And besides the fact when you read verses 9 and 10, gang, it is the song of the redeemed. Who sings the song of the redeemed? The redeemed. The redeemed do. You're not redeemed. That's not your song. And note also that it's a new song that they sing. This is a song that's never been before been sung in heaven. If they're saints from Israel, from prior to Christ, they could have sung this song long ago. But this is a new song. A new song sung here in chapters 4 and 5 after these things, but before the tribulation period begins. All this to say, if I've lost you, come back. That... John has been transported into the future to the heavenly throne room after these things, after the church age, where he witnesses the raptured church worshiping Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb who was slain before the throne. The church is in heaven now. Why? Why this gift? of the rapture to the church. Well, you Christians, what 
what makes you think you're so special? That you get caught up. And the rest of us have to deal with stuff down here. What gives you the right to claim that you're so special that you're a royal priesthood? You Christians? What indeed? I think about that and I think I'm not worthy of anything. Worthy to be caught up? Worthy to be raptured? Worthy to be saved? No, I didn't do anything to deserve this. Grace is unmerited favor. Right? We understand that. So, so why... Why is there going to be an element of people, the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ, who get to experience this catching up to be with the Lord, to go on, as it were, a seven-year holy honeymoon with Jesus? Why do we get that? One word. Trust. It's trust. Jesus makes this very clear. Thomas didn't believe. Now Thomas had great faith. Thomas was ready to die with Jesus. But after the crucifixion, I believe personally Thomas was overwrought. I believe that he was so bummed out that when he's with the other apostles, I'm not gonna, they all saw him, right? On resurrection eve, Thomas wasn't with them. All the rest of the apostles were. They come to Thomas. We saw him. He's alive. Thomas, it's true. It's all true. And Thomas says, <laughs> John twenty twenty five. unless I see the imprints of the nails in his hands, unless I put my hand in his side. I mean, that's crass. That's a bold statement. But he's not making it theologically. Unless I put my hand in his side. No. Unless I put my hand in his side. I'm not going to believe that he's alive. Don't sell me false hopes. Don't try and bring my spirit up by saying something that's just not true. I can't believe it unless I can put my hand in His side. And Jesus shows up. He's there in the room. He says, peace be with you. And then He said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but Believing, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Awesome. What does Jesus say? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed. I haven't seen all these things. I've read about them. John saw them. He told us about them. And I believe. And that's why I said back at the beginning, you know, Chesterton... Chesterton was right. The poet, I'll say the believer who has not seen, only asks to get his head into the heavens. I trust you, Lord, just bring me home. It's the critic who does not believe without seeing who seeks to get the heavens into his head and so his head splits. He gets a raging headache. And there are those who will say, and I'm going to finish right here. There are those who will say, I'll believe it when I see it. You talk about this rapture of the church. Well, when it happens, I'll believe it. If I see all the Christians just suddenly disappear, and I'm here, then I'll believe. Besides, I think I read something. I think I heard you say something, Pastor, about multiplied millions being saved in the tribulation. Well, I'll just be one of them. I've had the conversation with every single tour guide we've had in Israel. If... Jesus already came, and He comes a second time, I will ask Him, is this your first or your second coming? They love to say that. They think that's kind of you know kitschy. Is this your first or your second coming? It's not a good question to ask Him on His second coming. 
You trust now. Or you will miss the blessing. Blessed are those who believe without seeing. The blessed hope. The rapture of the church. That's the blessing. What did I do? I just believed Him. I trusted Him. And there is a blessing that comes with the trust. And the problems that come with the, with the approach that says, I'm just going to wait. And I hope it's none of you. I hope nobody here is just saying, yeah, it sounds too fantastic. So when it happens, if it happens, then I'll believe. Two problems with that approach. Number one, how do you think you're going to survive to make that choice? Because when the church is pulled out, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. The tribulation will break open. It will be horrific. This world is going to experience wrath like it has never experienced in history. How do you know you're even going to be alive to survive long enough to make a declaration of faith in Jesus? This right now is the age of grace. This right now is where Jesus has thrown open the invitation to any person on the planet, believe in me and you will be saved. Trust me and I got you. These are the days where the Bible says evil is, as bad as it is, the Bible says evil is restrained. But when the church leaves, when the Spirit leaves the world, First Thessalonians chapter 2, or Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that restraining influence goes away. All restraints are off, all bets are off, evil implodes on the earth, the demonic and the delusional and the dangerous, and people say, well, I'll wait for that. Why would you? When you could trust Him now and be saved, you are playing with eternity. And then there will be those saved, granted. Revelation 7 is a fantastic chapter because multiplied millions will be saved out of the tribulation. They will come to faith, seeing all this stuff fall apart, they will realize what they missed, what has taken place, that it really was all true, and they'll say, alright, okay, I believe, I believe, and they're going to be saved. But guess what? going to get a splitting headache. What do you mean? Revelation 20 verse 4, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. Man, if you wait around thinking you can get the heavens into your head, you're going to lose your head. Don't wait. Trust Him now. It's all here. It's the truth of God. Can you come to Him and accept that God's Word is God's Word? Can you take Him at His Word? If you can, you're going to get your head into the heavens. All of you, you're going to be saved. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That's the promise. Lord Jesus, I ask for faith to come. I ask for trust to be poured out. Lord, there is so much here that is compelling and is factual and is logical and reasonable throughout Your Word that as we go through and study these things, we can see the truth. We can learn the truth. But Lord Jesus, we need faith. We don't just need the truth, we need trust. And I simply ask for all of us, regardless of where we are with you this morning, that we would all have an increase of our trust in Jesus. An increase of faith in you. So that we are among those who maybe we have not seen, but we yet believe. 
As you said, Lord, that's where the blessing is. I ask this morning, Lord, that you will draw us forward in faith. And that if there's anyone here who has not believed, or someone who's been waffling in their trust, Lord, would you call them out and bring them to your side. In Jesus' name, amen.